The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. So this morning, in speaking about that a little bit, uh, what does it look like as we extend our reach, uh, as we see the gospel impacting our lives in such a way that we talked about a few weeks ago, that it goes deeper into our own hearts, uh, that, that we're changed internally, that we don't just want to be about behavioral modification, but we want to be about spiritual transformation. That we don't want your behaviors to change. Behavior should follow the heart. And behavioral modification normally is based out of fear. But when you have a spiritual transformation taking place, when Christ comes into your life and your heart is changed, it says that from that heart flows life into your being and you then you begin to see love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control, and these things against which there is no law, that they begin naturally to be a part of your life. You look into God's Word in Romans, and you recognize that you know a tree by its fruit, and the fruit that you bear within your life because the gospel, because the power of the Spirit applying the gospel into your life has taken a deeper root that you are even amazed by yourself at times. That you're not responding in the same way that you used to respond. That you still have that as an opportunity. You can still get angry. You can still get mad. You can still be punitive. You can still sulk. You can still come unglued. You can still do all of those. Those are always menu options for you. But something has happened in you. And you begin to see that there's a softening, that there's something uh, that's taking place within you. And it's this reach of the gospel extending deeper and further into your life. And it's... It's changing you from the inside out. And then you come and you're a part of a community of believers who are being changed in that same way. And the entirety of the church is being changed in that way. And then the church's ministry and mission changes and goes deeper. And then we saw last week that part of what we want to do with our reach is not just to reach ourselves and our hearts, but we want to reach out into the world, Psalm 96, talking about uh, that we're here uh, to lead the nations into worship, uh, that missions is a ministry of song that we want to see through our own singing, uh, both literally and figuratively, that our lives are a song uh, that we celebrate before God and worship Him and praise, and that we take that message of celebration and music to the world. And Mike and Chrissy Costner with Mission to the World in Belize were here last week and were sharing with us some of what they are doing there, that we partner with folks uh, who are there around uh, the world, uh, serving the needs of people. Thinking this week, uh, Dale Phillips, who's also with Reach Global, is going out to South Africa uh, to minister to a group there called East Mountain uh, Group and Ministry. And in that, believing that through the transformation of their hearts, uh, that they'll have a bigger impact Uh, on the people of South Africa, that Gabe Smith, who is the missionary who is there, backstory, Gabe was uh, 14 when I met Gabe in in our middle school ministry at Forest Hill Church in Charlotte, and now to see him uh, as a West Point grad and as a war veteran and as a pastor now serving the needs. I've been trying to get in touch with him, and every day he has the best excuse. I'm out serving rural pastors in the out 
uh, outermost parts of South Africa. Can I get back to you? Like, well, that's not fair. I, I'm busy having lunch at Applebee's. You know, I mean, come on. Back. It's like, oh. But they're there doing these great things. So we see the reach around the world. But here's something I want you to understand. It's okay to go around the world. It's okay to go serve the Hispanic-speaking communities of Mexico and Belize and South America and Latin America, but we also need to be serving the Hispanic-speaking communities here because sometimes what happens with the American church is we like to go over there, and what it really does is it masks our own racism, our own nationalism, and our own pride because we won't serve the people who are right in our backyard. It's exotic and it's fun and it's amazing to go to Africa to serve Africans, but yet we have no relationship or ministry to African-Americans who are right here within our own country. And so we want to do both. We do want to see the reach of the gospel extending around the world, but we want to see right here in our own backyard that our church continues to have an impact, that our reach is extended here. And so we're going to be going to Acts chapter 2 this morning to uh, the very first church, if you would, the church uh, of first uh, church of Jerusalem uh, there begun on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to read and hear and see what it means as we extend our reach within our community. Let us give attention to God's word. Beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all any, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we come to you now and ask in humility that you would teach us through your word. Speak for your children. Listen to Christ be the glory. Amen. So we're going to look at three simple things today. We're going to ask the question about the church, who Who makes up the church, both the New Testament church and our church? What does it look like? Who gathers together in this new gospel community uh, that the Lord is forming through uh, Christ, through the message of the gospel? And then what does it look like for this church? What are some of the characteristics uh, of this new community uh, that has been formed within the world by the power of the Spirit? And then what's the result of that within a community, within any given particular community where this new gospel community exists in the manner in which God designed it? You see, the book of Acts is a historic document. It is an early writing of what was the church like that Luke wrote both the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles as two volumes of one work to Theophilus who may have been a leader or a ruler in uh, the Roman government. But in any case, what he was doing was saying, this is what the church is about. This is what the church believes. This is the history, as it were, of our movement of Christianity within the world. 
And so it becomes incredibly important to us as believers to go back to this original doctrine or this original document and say, if this is what the church looked like literally in its inception as it began, if these were the characteristics and the traits of the church of Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem and Judea and in all of the Roman Empire in those days, it then should have those same or similar characteristics within our churches and within our lives. And it begs the question, if I go back and I read these things and I see that they had these mentalities, they had these life changes, they had this theology, uh, they had these uh, qualities amongst themselves within the individual lives, within families, within the church itself, if I look and say that's what the original church looked like, And I see none of them in my own life or in our own church. It begs the question, am I a follower of Christ at all? Because we, the the scriptures demand that type of hard conversation with our hearts. To say, if we look at Paul, he says, if you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, the spirit is going to dwell within you. And you're going to be one who has the gifts of love, joy, peace, patience. You go, I don't have love. I don't experience joy. I'm incredibly impatient. Well, then it begs the question. I don't ask the question. The Scripture does. If you don't have these in your life, do you have the Spirit? And if you don't have the Spirit, can you have Christ? And if you don't have Christ, you can't be a follower of Christ. And so we're going to look at this with a great seriousness today for us as individuals, but also with a great joy of saying this is what we aspire to. This is what we see at some level in us and something that we aspire to even greater each day. And so the first thing that we see is really asking the question, who, come, who came together? What did the first church look like? And for that, you have to back up a little bit in chapter uh, 2 there and go to verses 5 uh, through 11. And it says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, that is the sound uh, of the Spirit of God coming uh, upon the believers. It says, At this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our, his own native language, native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and to the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear, uh, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others were mocking, said these men are obviously filled with wine. So what you see at the very beginning was that on that day, we're told that 3,000 people believed, that there was this movement of God's Spirit, that there was a speaking in tongues, and the tongues that they were declaring were literal languages of the people who were gathering in Jerusalem. And here, all these Galileans, about 120 of them who had been gathered, uh, followers of Christ and the disciples and others, were speaking, and all of a sudden, people were hearing the gospel in their own language. And it says that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. So the church grew uh, in one day from 120 uh, followers of Christ to now 3,120 followers of Christ. And we're told very shortly after that, another couple of thousand people came to faith in giving their lives to Christ through this early ministry of the church. 
So who were these people? Well, here's what's astonishing about them. They had absolutely nothing in common except Jesus Christ. Nothing. They had no racial commonality. They had no national commonality. They didn't have a language commonality. They didn't have an educational commonality. They didn't have a wealth or poverty commonality. It was a group of people from every possible background over the Roman Empire who had come there to Jerusalem. They'd heard the gospel message preached to them. Their hearts were changed and instantaneously These people who before that had nothing in common now had everything in common because of Christ. Because what they realized was that the commonality of Christ supersedes and trumps everything else that divides us. It has to. And if it doesn't, then we have to ask the question, what gospel are we adhering to? Because you see, this gospel preached all of a sudden, these people who, who didn't know each other. Some may not have even liked each other. I laugh uh, at times in some trips that I've gone down to uh, South America. That I was going down to uh, minister in Buenos Aires with the Argentines. And I learned some things about South America. That I learned that the Paraguayans and the Uruguayans don't get along really well. And that the Brazilians and the Chileans may not get along really well. And everybody, though, dislikes the Argentines. Yeah, there you go. A Chilean who lets you know that it's nationalistic. But then there was this amazing thing that happened. I'm down in Buenos Aires and I'm being introduced to a man who was a gang leader within the Uruguayan community. And he was a rough and mean man. He took me to his house. He showed me the hole in the wall where he had tried to kill his wife by throwing a TV set at her head one night. And this man had come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and was radically changed. And there was a man just down the ways in the slum in which he lived who was the Uruguayan uh, kingpin the gang leader of the Uruguayans, and the Uruguayans and the Paraguayans hated each other in this slum, and there was territorial fights, and there were people who were killed, and there was tension, and now these two men, the Uruguayan had come to faith through this work of my friend's church, La Mission, which said the gospel comes across national lines, and he said, I believe that so much that he preached the gospel in this slum, and now there was a Uruguayan kingpin and a Paraguayan kingpin in a small group together. And as I walked past the hole in the wall on the stairs, this man was so excited to show me an entire upstairs that he was building in the slum. And he said, Pastor, in his broken English and through a translator, Pastor, I'm building this entire new floor of my house for our small group Bible study. We're not going to live here. This is just for our small group to have a place to stay. Because you see, the gospel, when it comes, it takes enemies, it takes people of racial divides, of of educational divides, that have absolutely nothing in common, and it brings them together and says, now you have something so in common that it trumps everything else. Isn't that awesome? What else does that in the world? This week was not a week in which watching the news was something that brought everyone together. Politics divide us. Gender divides us. Race divides us. Class divides us. Only the gospel of Jesus comes in, cuts across all of those things, and says through him we are together one. And we desire to be together. 
in this new gospel community. That's what it looked like. Wouldn't that be awesome if our church began to reflect that commonality that said we are, as one would say, of only one race, the human race, all made in the image of God and redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we come together and we enjoy being together in our differences. Does that play out in your life? Or are you only drawn to people who look like you, who act like you, who have educational backgrounds like you? You see, the American church and America in general is along those lines. They're old lines. And the gospel comes in and changes them. You see, life has got to be different from choosing a fraternity at my college when I was a freshman. There were six fraternities at my college when I was a freshman. If you were a bit more of a redneck, kind of a country boy, then you were going to be a Sigma Nu. That's what you were going to be. And you were going to go and be a Sigma Nu. If you were a football player and a jock, uh, then you were going to be a pika. If you were more of a soccer player who enjoyed an indulgence or two, smoking a little bit of pot, then you were probably going to be a Theta Chi. If you just enjoyed drugs, you were going to be an Alpha Sig. Uh, If you were more uh, from money and a Southern gentleman, you'd be a Kappa Alpha Order, KA. And if you didn't fit into anything else, then you were going to be a, 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 what were they? I don't remember who they were, the guys next to me. I was a KA. Because I thought, I'm going to be around the southern gentlemen, guys. I didn't want to be a redneck. I, I looked, and so you came to college, and what you did was you went, who can I be with who looks an awful lot like me? And therefore, I don't have to change. I won't be challenged. Nothing about this is going to be difficult. I'm going to hang out with this homogeneous group of people who look, smell, act, and do everything that I do. You see, we do that today in life. And the gospel says this, no, because of the power of the work of the gospel, It takes you and it makes you look across lines and say, here's what we have in common. I have Christ in common with you and I'm drawn to you. I'm drawn to you. I want to learn from you. I want to know about you. I want to be in relationship with you. That's the first thing of who came together. Everybody came together there in the first church. And that's what it should look like today for us. From background, race, education, wealth, poverty, it doesn't matter that we come together through the commonality of Christ. So what did it look like when this whole group of people came together? Uh, Tim Keller, in a sermon on this text, uh, said that there were three L's. I'm never good at alliteration, but he is evidently, and so there's three L's. Uh, That they learned, they loved, and they had liturgy. Three L's. That they learned together. It says that they were dedicated and devoted themselves to the apostles. And the word actually is doctrine. A word that we don't like anymore. A a word that we don't enjoy. Dogma. Doctrine. But it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That you see, the followers of Jesus Christ are ones who bear the truth of what Christ taught. And if you're going to bear the truth of what Christ taught, then you need to know what Christ taught. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it would behoove you to know him, to know everything about him. If you're single and you're thinking about getting married, then here's what I need to tell you. Dating is all about concealing and marriage is all about revealing. So flip it. In your dating relationship, know the other person so there's not some surprise that comes down the road and then you realize we're incompatible. 
It's the same way with Christ. Know him intimately. Know what he said and what he taught. Don't fall into the trap that says, just give me Jesus. Don't give me your doctrine. Give me Jesus. Don't give me your theology. Folks, that's an impossibility. I can't give you Jesus without giving you theology and doctrine. I can't explain to you who Christ is if I'm not able to also say that he was simultaneously God and simultaneously man without corruption and without perversion. That he came and somehow had a substitutionary atonement once and for all for us. Substitutionary, he took our place, substituted atonement, atoned for our sins, that we are justified by him That now because of his completed work, that it is just as if I'd never sinned. That I'm sanctified, made more like him. All theology. You see, your orthodoxy, what you believe, informs and leads to your orthopraxy, what you do. Folks, what you believe matters. Would you agree with that? We live in a world where someone says, well, don't talk to me about Jesus. I'm not religious. Interesting, backing out into that word religious, religion It means in the Latin, or can mean in the Latin, bound to. Everybody in the world is religious. Everyone. You're bound to some doctrine. You're bound to some worldview. Something shapes how you view the world. Now, you may shift it and change it by cultural norms, or just because it became a little more difficult, you're going to dumb it down. But you still have something by which you live. And for the first Christians, they gathered around And they wanted sound teaching. Folks, we live in a world and we live in a country particularly where sound teaching of God's word is gone. Pragmatic business practice, how to make more money, how to have more money at the end of the day, how to have a better marriage, how to have a happier life. That's what the pulpits of our country are teaching. And what we need to teach is, yes, here's what I can tell you about money. God owned it all and gave it to you for a season. Be generous with it. It's good to talk about money and finances, but that's not the point. We've got to teach the doctrines of Christ, now applied to our lives, but the doctrines of Christ, to love them and want to know them. I hope that your shelves are filled with books that are teaching you about the beautiful depth of the doctrines of Christ, that you're moving on from the milk of infancy into meat of adulthood and adolescence. So they learned together. They studied together. More than just the few minutes that we're together each week. And then it says that they loved together. They loved each other. It says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. To fellowship. What does that mean? They devoted themselves to fellowship. What an odd statement. They devoted themselves to fellowship. I think what he was saying was that it has to be intentional. That you have to say, in a world where you're busy, in a world where we live isolated lives, in a world where we're segmented, where we're fragmented, uh, where we think, I was talking with someone the other day, and, and I, they said, hey, it was great to hear that you and so-and-so have uh, you know, kind of made up. And I said, made up? We haven't even talked. They said, well, you guys texted back and forth. I was like, yeah, but we haven't talked. We, we live in a world that has to be intentional about relationship and fellowship. I was joking with our neighbors. We, we live next door to the Perkins, who are members of our church, and to the Phillips, who are members of our church, and we never see any of them. They're busy. We're busy. Everybody's busy. And then we look out, and we bump into each other at the mailbox or at church every now and then and go, hey, how are you? Good to see you. You have to be intentional. And so often we're not, that you have to work 
towards these things of fellowship, that they loved each other well within this fellowship, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. Someone said, well, Bill, you know that's never repeated in the New Testament, so is that a normative statement? And I said, well, let's take it off of the normative plane and say this. Maybe nowhere else in the New Testament does it say that you have to sell all of your things and give and live in a common uh, community. But at least the general principle is there, which is this. I am in fellowship with you. I am sharing life with you. And if you have a need that needs to be met and I have to liquidate an asset in order to meet that need, then I will. Because you have a need. And because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are family bound together across every line that distinguishes us and divides us, and now we're together and you have a need, it would be the height of not loving you to say, I can't meet that need, when really what I'm saying is, I won't meet that need. Because what the gospel says is this, Christ said, I can and will meet your need when you are at your greatest need. And if that's what Christ said to us, how in the world can I withhold something from you? Do you see what was happening? This group was coming together and they'd been pierced in their hearts by the gospel. And they said, how is it that we can be saved? And it said, put your faith in Christ. And they gave their lives to Christ. And then they looked around and went, okay, now we've got Christ in common. What in the world do we do next? And they said, oh, well, maybe we have meals together and we get to know each other. And then in through that fellowship, we realize that some people have needs and I can meet those needs. So I'm going to meet those needs and we're going to do these things sacrificially because Christ sacrificed for me. The doctrine of his sacrifice applied to my common life means I will sacrifice for you, believing that my God who has supplied all of my needs in Christ Jesus will supply them even the rest of the way. So they lived life together and loved each other. Well, but they didn't just learn and they didn't just love each other well in fellowship. They didn't just do that in the homes. They worshiped together. There was a liturgy. And the reason that we know that it's a liturgy is it says actually in the Greek, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the, you see it there, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It doesn't just say in the breaking of bread. That would mean they had meals together. It says that a little bit later. So it's good to have a supper club. That's fine. It's good for you to have a supper club. Enjoy a meal together. Go out today after church and have a meal with somebody else from the church. Enjoy that breaking bread together. But it says they broke the bread together. That's communion. That's the Lord's Supper. They came together within the context of worship and they had the sacraments together. They were reminded through the beauty of the grace of God given to us through communion, through baptism, through worship, through the prayers that they were together and they worshiped God together. They devoted themselves to praising God. That's why it's so good that you're here today. I do actually want to say to you, well done. You had a really good excuse not to be here. There's a lot of rain. There's a lot of wind. It's messy. I promise you, as I'm looking out of my garage this morning and notice that my youngest son's car is parked behind my wife's car and that my truck is over here, that I'm going to have to get into the rain, back my truck out, park it, get back into the rain, move my son's car out, back, pull it back in, get it out of the way so that my wife can get out and get to church. And I thought, is it worth it? <laughs> I had to come. 
You didn't have to come. But you see, in the middle of that, oh, but we want to come. We want to worship together. We, we want to celebrate together. That's why we have the Lord's Supper once a month. We could do it every week and it'd be just as important to be reminded in visible and tangible touch and taste that Christ sacrificed his body and his blood for us. And that we would pray together and praise God together. So that's what it looked like in this community of people who had absolutely nothing in common other than Christ. They studied together and challenged one another on to what they believed. They lived in fellowship and love together, caring for one another. And they worshipped together. Folks, it's good for us to worship together. It's good for us to be together. There's a tendency and a tension within our culture that you can be a good Christian and never come to church. I had such a hard time with that. That's such not a first Acts two concept to sit at home with your tablet and worship God in the privacy of your room. The early believers would go, what? I know more about Christ because I'm with you. I see a difference uh, in my view of Christ because you are with me and I see Christ through you. Same Christ, one truth, but seen through your vantage point. When I see you worship differently than I worship, when I hear you pray differently than I pray, when I see you live and love differently than I do, I grow in the depth of my relationship with Christ because, expressly because I'm in relationship with you and you with me, hopefully. So that's what the early church looked like. That's what they did together. So the question then becomes, okay, so what impact did it have? What impact did it have? What was the result of this new gospel community? Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was a sense in which they had favor with the people around them. And I wonder why. I wonder if at some level there weren't rallies against the Roman government. There were just Christians living out the truth of the gospel in their lives and people from every background came together and said, I want what they have. There's something favorable about them because they're serve- it's hard to argue with somebody who's serving the needs of the poor. It's hard to argue with somebody who's loving across racial lines, who's living life together, who's doing something that governments and politics and groups and civil groups, civic groups can never do and were never intended to do. They had favor in the eyes of people. They were interested, interesting, as a quick aside, they were persecuted still, Right? But yet they had favor in the eyes of the people. It's an interesting balance that we can have favor within the eyes of people and still be persecuted. And it says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I've said it before. I want our church to continue to grow. But over the years, I hope that we grow through conversion more than transfer. It's great to have people coming from other churches and being with us, and I love that, and I enjoy that, and I'm thankful that this can be a safe home for many, and they can hear the gospel, and they can experience the truth of God's word lived out imperfectly as it is here in this group that we call Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, but my hope over time is that we'll see more and more people come to faith. Amen? Isn't that what the church is about? 
Do we want to see our neighbors who aren't Christians become Christians? Do we want to see our family members who aren't Christians become Christians? Well, one of the ways in which we are going to see that is, yes, it's an act of God's free will, an act of God's free grace upon the individual's life, but it is done through a community of believers who look an awful lot like this, who are loving your neighbors enough to invite them to dinner, who have absolutely nothing in common with you. If you're a a wonderful Republican, invite a bleeding heart Democrat to your house. I dare you. If you're a bleeding heart Democrat, invite a staunch Republican to your house and have a meal and get to know them. If you're white, invite somebody who's from a different skin color. If you're from a different skin color, invite somebody from a different skin color into your home and have a meal together. I told you about one of the first meals we had as we started a church in Midtown Memphis. Our neighbor came over to our house. We invited them over to our house. We were going to try to put into practice all this stuff that I've been preaching. We brought them over to our house. They brought a bottle of wine. They put it down on the table, and he looked at me. He goes, so you're a pastor who believes uh, in uh, you don't like gays, and you don't believe in abortion. It's like, I'm Bill McCutcheon. Welcome to my home. <laughs> that was right out of the gate. And we had the most wonderful meal together. And eventually, we became friends to the point even where he would invite me to participate in lifestyle choices that they were making that I I couldn't make as a Christian, as a moral man. But at least he'd said, I'd like you enough to invite you into this lifestyle. And I was able to say to him, here's why I can't do that. Because you see, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But they had nothing in common with us. Nothing politically, socially, in common with us, but we became good friends and we shared the gospel with them. And they, they didn't come to know Christ, but I sure hope they will. Because we engaged them in life. It's a whole lot easier to hang out with people just like you, isn't it? They don't challenge you, do they? Oh, if you want to be challenged, step out. The Lord was adding to their number day by day. I'm going to end with a couple of quick examples about how this worked out in history. The first is from history, uh, the Roman history. In, in the first hundred years of, of Christianity, Christianity within Rome went from less than 6% uh, of the population to over 60% of the population in Rome in a hundred years. How in the world did it do that? Rodney Stark in a great book called The Rise of Christianity, subtitle is even better, how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. It's a great book. It's thick. And it's history, but it's awesome. I've got a copy if you want to borrow it. He said in 165 and then again in 251, there were plagues, most likely measles or smallpox. 5,000 people a day were dying in the cities of the Roman Empire. 5,000 people a day. That 25 to 30% of the total population was lost through those plagues. The pagans knew this in their worldview. There is nothing really in the life to come. It has to be all about this world. That's a pagan worldview. And we don't know much about medicine, but we know this. If you hang out in the cities, if you hang out in the areas where there's a lot of people and some of those people are sick, we're going to get sick and we're going to die and we have no hope through death. So therefore, we need to separate ourselves from sick people. And they moved to the coasts. They moved away from the metropolitan areas and they left their loved ones to die. A husband would say to his spouse, hey, I really do love you, but I can't get sick from you. Hopefully you'll be alive when I come back. Parents would leave their children. Children would leave their parents. Families were broken apart. Society was broken apart. But there was an interesting group of people who stayed. Their worldview said this, 
Christ has conquered death. And that even if I die in this life, I have heaven and a new earth to come. And that I'm called to love even if it costs me dearly, even if it costs me my own life. And for a number of these Christians within the Roman Empire, they were poor and they couldn't run to their Mediterranean sea house. And so they had to stay there in the cities. And a fascinating thing happened. There was a, a doctor, Gallen, who wrote, and he spoke of these things that took place. And thousands and thousands of sick pagans in the city lived. Now thousands died and thousands of Christians died caring for them. But thousands lived. And can you imagine what happened when their families came home from the coast and found them alive? They said, oh, it's so good that you're alive. That's awesome. We're so excited to see you. Hey, let's get back together. I'm good. I'm going to stay with these Christians who stayed and died and loved me. That's my true family. And I'm going to believe in what they believe in, this Christ who gave them a hope that transcends this world and a view of heaven that makes me so earthly good because I have a view of something so heavenly minded that I'm going to aim for heaven and it's going to throw earth in. I'm not going to be like you and aim for earth and miss both of them. And all of a sudden you saw people converted and people coming to faith and changed forever. Why? The church acted like the church. Christians lived out their faith even at great cost to themselves. And by the way, this would have been a terrible evangelism strategy. Hey, come, stay in the cities. You may die, but we're hoping to have a few people come to faith. We can't even get people to knock on doors. Can't imagine the response to that outreach. But they said this, live your life as a believer within this world and see where it leads you. And it led them to take care of people. There's a young woman who is on our youth trip this weekend, and she's a follower of Jesus Christ because some teenagers in her school had something that she realized she wanted, and they were bold enough to share with her the gospel of Jesus Christ and invite her to our youth group, and she came to faith two summers ago. It doesn't have to be plagues and dramatic. It can be the simplicity of saying to somebody around you through your life, let me tell you about what I have in Christ and who he is. And let me share that with you. You see, the new life of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, makes you of incredible good to the world around us. So does your worldview lead you to that? Does our church reflect these things? Does your life reflect these things? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word, for the conviction that it brings to our hearts. We're challenged by it. We're cut some to the quick. I pray that you would forgive us of those things which divide us. Father, that you would show us these things and that we through Christ would repent and come together. I pray that we would live life together well. We would love well together, caring for the needs of one another, bearing their burdens in Christ, and that the world around us would see it. And I pray that you would give us favor in the eyes of Hilton Head and of Bluffton in the Low Country, and that through going out, cutting a few trees, serving a few meals, inviting a neighbor to our house, 
worshiping together, that we would see you do great and mighty things. Father, we praise you and we give you glory in Christ's name. For truly we can say and sing, all I have is Christ.